Hey everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre, and I'm here with Michael. On today's episode, where we dive into Mark chapter 2, we'll discuss Jesus is the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath, his time with the disciples, and his interactions with the religious elite. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. So I was on Instagram the other day, and I found this. It's probably pretty old. It says it's from 2019, but it's basically just this thing where it has painting dots on the picture, and it has like six characteristics of each Enneagram type. And I'm an Enneagram 1, and it said, A fresh and clean house, fiercely caring for dear friends, creating a system to follow, stopping to help someone finish a task, the flow of confidence and doubt on the daily, and brand new planner, which, conveniently, I just got a new planner. So, I don't know. I felt like that fit me pretty well. What you know, Enneagram are you? I'm three. Can you read mine, you know, just to see if how that one matches up? Yeah. A day off, or at least trying to have a day off. A captive audience, completely crossed off to-do list, power outfit, phone call or text, pep talk to friends, another favorite podcast, which hopefully now is radically normal. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting about Enneagrams is that like, I always knew I was a three for like the past like year and a half or whatever. And then, but then I, I never really knew anything about like the wings and then like, I knew I was like a three wing two, but I never really knew that you could only be the wing of a number that's right next to you. So I always like thought you could be like a, a three wing eight or something. Wait, you know? really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So you could only be like a wing for like, so I'm a three. I can only be a wing two or, or a wing four. Oh, okay. So I've, I'm a one, so I can only be two or nine, but I've always wondered why those were the only options. Cause I actually identify as a person more with five than anything else besides one so that's that's interesting i guess the cool thing about the test is that there's so many questions that you can't it's not really one of those tests where you can kind of manipulate your answers to like like what you think you are i guess like there's just so many questions that it ends up being like more reliable i think so maybe people aren't as familiar with our enneagrams if they if they aren't one or three so what are some characteristics of a three i think the the coolest thing about I think the whole Enneagram thing and, and just like the characteristics or whatever is it's just like, as you like read it, then like you like realize that you didn't really like know how much like you, you thought of yourself in that way or whatever. But then like, once you read it, you're like, Oh wait, I do do that so much. But you know, I was reading through the basic fears for both of ours. And it was for, for mine, it was just like, it was saying about, uh, uh, setting and accomplishing goals to like feel like successful or worthy. And then yours said something, along the lines of uh the fear is to be corrupt or evil so the basic desire of a one is to to basically make the ethically right choice and to to live with integrity and like the, the interesting thing about that is like as we like talk about like our like career like plans like vision or whatever mine says like a lot of stuff about like entrepreneurship and that kind of thing and then yours had like lawyer and like religious like activist or whatever and those two things like exactly what you want to do and kind of exactly what i want to do i don't want people to hear activist and think i'm going to be on the street with a sign all day long <laughs> the the uh i think that russell moore's organization the erlc the ethics and religious liberty commission does a lot of good work and i'd love to work there um so that goes right with the strong yeah. sense of right and wrong and and walking ethically yeah so to quote it wasn't activist it was a social advocate uh religious worker and lawyer we're, we're all on there and then it's kind of weird because the the Enneagram Institute site has like the the people that your that your type is is like, and so some of the or a lot of the people listed are dead. So it's kind of like did they just read all of their works and kind of figure out their personality? Because one of the first people listed for mine is Plato, and and I've read a bit of Plato, and so just like thinking of that, like huh, Plato was Plato was a one. That's interesting, and you can kind of see that if 
if you read them, but just, and then you see like other random people that are just completely not like that at all, whether that be uh, Al Gore or Harrison Ford or anything like that. Man, I love Indiana Jones, so that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> and then I guess other characteristics would be like the strengths associated with it. And for yours, it says ability to serve and improve their community, sharing creative ideas, um, defending and standing up for those around them. Kind of interesting. And then on mine, it says stuff about uh, ability to easily connect with others, uh, self-confident and self-aware, dedication to achieving goals. I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, but everybody watch out. One of the first people that's considered an example of Enneagram 3 for Andre is Augustus Caesar. So who knows where where <laughs> his life is going to take a turn at any moment. He can end up claiming himself as God, putting himself on coins. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, no, that reminds me of, uh, you know, Passion when, when Ravi was talking about that, the passage about the coin with uh, Caesar's face on it. And then just uh, reminding us, you know, our face is God's. You know, that was, was kind of just stuck out to me, like, ever since then when he said that. But, yeah, yeah, that's good. I do wonder, it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting. You like read the gospels and you see these different characters and it's easy for us to identify with one or the other, like the Gnostics in the first and second centuries identified with Thomas because he didn't, he didn't believe in the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus or he, he didn't have the, the faith that it was there. So he had to, to touch Jesus. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Like as you read through the Bible, you can identify with certain characters and stuff. And then you start, and then now you start to wonder like, Hmm, I wonder what Jesus uh, or I guess God in that sense, or Jesus as a person would be, or what Peter would be, or what Samson would be, or David or Moses. It's kind of weird or interesting. Yeah, I guess, you know, unfortunately they can't take the test, but they're prescribing <laughs> these things to a bunch of people who... We can ask him one day. Yeah, well, we'll ask what, what Enneagram he was. Maybe it will be interesting. Probably It's probably a three, you know? Just got to put that out there. That's blasphemy. <laughs> okay. Mark chapter two today. We have a lot to think about, a lot of different things that Jesus is doing between his healing and talking about the Sabbath, talking, giving some short parables about his identity and his time with the disciples. He calls Matthew. So let's get going. It's, it's interesting to say he calls Matthew, you know, it says Levi and then the whole like little, I don't know where the name change is coming from, but Michael pointed it out to me. Super interesting, I guess. But yeah, let's dive into chapter two. Yeah. So the first thing is that he returns to Capernaum and he was at home. It's actually probably Peter's house. And there were a ton of people gathered, and it says in the ESV, many were gathered, which uh, can also be translated, there was a crowd. And so we've talked about this a little bit previously, but in Mark, the crowds really aren't viewed very positively. Jesus shows compassion towards them, but you don't really see crowds turning to him in repentance. The crowds are not a measure of success. The disciples here, you see that these people have faith and they're bringing a paralytic. They have this innovative faith. They can't get to Jesus and they're trying to bring their friend him. So they go up on the roof and they lower him down. And I think that's just really begging the question for us or them then is, are we just going to stand there and listen to Jesus? Are we going to be somebody who even reads the Bible and listens to Jesus and it's going to stop there? Or are we going to crucify our flesh and be a disciple? And you kind of see the contrast between the crowds and what the friends of the paralytic are doing. One interesting thing that I found is that uh, when, when Jesus like attributes them lowering their friend through the roof as like them having faith. And it was, it was kind of like, I guess it was like stated as like kind of like a joke on, on a, on a website I was like reading through or whatever, but it said like lowering him down through the roof would have been a lot easier than lifting him back up. So like clearly their assumption would have been that the guy was going to like, you know, just walk out. <laughs> so they had like faith that Jesus was going to do that. Cause you know, like lifting him back up through the roof, that would have been like tremendously just like, honestly, just ridiculous. It would have been so difficult, but 
I thought I thought that was kind of interesting. But then also, one thing that I was thinking about, I was reading through like you know Jesus doing his miracles and people just being like in all of those. But you know, right before it says that they brought the paralytic to him, it says that he was preaching the word to them. So I think that a lot of times throughout the first two chapters of Mark, we're seeing how the people are like having a lot of focus on on the miracles, which are like extremely important, but they're not focusing so much on like Jesus preaching and like you know his like words of like how he's forgiving their sins, how he's, how he can save them and all. And I think that's like very interesting how, you know, they really care about the flashy part, but not the the part about just like, you know, listening and diving and following him being a disciple. Yeah. And it's interesting because scribes and Pharisees and a lot of people that Jesus is contrasted with, or the people that Jesus ministers to are contrasted with. You would expect those people to be caring or thinking a lot through uh, the theology of what Jesus is saying. And then it's interesting because Jesus, it says in verse five, he sees their faith, but it it doesn't say he heard their faith or they spoke and he knew they had faith. He saw it like their action demonstrated their faith. Kind of like today, we like, you'll hear the famous quote, like you're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Like you're the, the fruit of faith or the works that come about as it testify to it. Yeah, and it was interesting as as this happens, you know, um, Jesus, he he initially says, you know, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees kind of question him and they're saying that it's blasphemy. Well, then Jesus like begs the question, like, which is easier to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. And, you know, obviously having a paralytic begin to walk, that that's something that, you know, like the proof is like right before your eyes. Like you're going to see it. If, if, if it actually isn't true, it's going to be super obvious. Whereas like the whole part of like, you know, your sins are forgiven. There's no way to really like, like see that with your own eyes. You kind of, that's more of a faith thing. Um, and clearly Jesus is forgiving his sins, but it's interesting because in like culturally for, for the, for the Jewish people and the Pharisees understand this, that a lot of times they attribute people having sickness or, or being a paralytic or anything along those lines to someone being like having a lot of sin or along the lines of like the demon possession we've seen in, in chapter one. And so as this person is healed, they attribute that physical healing also with spiritual healing. So it becomes a lot easier for them to, you know, understand like, oh yeah, Jesus probably did, you know, heal his sins as well. He probably did forgive him of his sins, but now they're still questioning the fact like, is he really God? And, you know, so they're still, they're like utterly confused and just like assuming it's blasphemy. Yeah. I'm so glad that we're spending time like getting underneath and thinking about like the Jewish culture and the context of Jesus's words, because it's so easy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven and us to think, oh, of course Jesus forgives my sins. But in the context of the day, if somebody said that and it wasn't, you know, them quoting Isaiah and Isaiah quoting God or that being um, Moses and God from Exodus, then that would have been blasphemy, which uh, according to the law in Leviticus was punishable by death. So the scribes are right. Like Jesus, Jesus saying he can forgive sins is blasphemous if Jesus isn't God. So we see Jesus uh, identifying not only as Messiah, but identifying himself with the creator, which would have been new for them. And as like you talk about how Jesus is identifying himself, like one thing to keep in mind is like, you know, he is cognizant of like the Jewish like culture and, and like what's going on here. And I think he's like super aware of it, especially when he calls himself the son of man. Um, you know, this is like kind of his way of like calling himself the Messiah without actually going out and saying it. Cause you know, he doesn't want to like cause like a political uproar or he doesn't want people to think that he's like the person who's like going to take down Rome. Um, and so he's like trying to like depoliticize, uh, what's going, like what's going on 
um, but still show him himself as the Messiah. And this is kind of like the first time that we see um, Son of Man come up. And, you know, it's really interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. So just thinking about Son of Man, like Andre said, we have that Jesus isn't just saying that he's the Christ, which which means Messiah. And you see that when people identify him as that, then he says, you know, don't tell anybody. Because like Andre said, that's a, that's a politically heated term at the time. But Son of Man does fit in with what Jesus is doing and the themes in Mark. So like when we were talking about in the intro and in the last episode about uh, Jesus as king and that being central to uh, what Mark is trying to portray Jesus as, Son of Man fits in or is used in three ways. Like Jesus speaks of himself as Son of Man in three ways. The first is right here, like forgiveness of sins. The second is in an apocalyptic type of sense, dealing with eschatology in the end times. When you like, when he says uh, closer to the end of Mark, when you see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory, referring to the future, and then in the third way, most prominently, is talking about suffering. And so those all seem like they're all across the spectrum in terms of scope and what they're trying, what they're portraying. But those all fit in with the idea of Jesus as King. The forgiveness of sins is central to God reigning and God establishing kingdom because if uh, he's if he's reigning through people, then atonement or forgiveness of sin is central to that. Second, if it's about the if it's apocalyptic and it's talking about the end times and Jesus's consummated reign at the end, uh, then that that's when we see the reign of or the reign of Christ in Revelation. And then third, suffering. That sounds the least like King, but like we've said, that's what Mark is. That's what Mark portrays the whole time in the gospel, that Jesus is that suffering servant and he is the crucified king. So all all the ideas of how Jesus portrays himself as son of man fit into the idea of him as both Messiah and king. And as we think of Jesus as Messiah and king, you know, it really this passage here just really shows us, especially when it says we never saw anything like this, just the power of the words of Jesus kind of reminds me from like um, Mark chapter one, I think it was verse 22 when, when they were saying like, We've never heard anyone preach like this before. You know, just like it's just showing us the power of his words. Yeah, for sure. This is exactly what we see. This is just a constant reoccurring theme. Like when he's when he's preaching, he doesn't preach like the scribes preach or when he when he heals the leper or when he uh, now heals the paralytic. The the words of Jesus have not just a wisdom to them, but an, an, an authority to them that's different. And I think we see that when he calls the disciples, like when he calls um Andrew, or when he calls now, when he calls Levi. So I guess that's the next section here. Yeah, and I, I thought this this part was like really, really interesting to me. You know, when when Jesus called Simon and Andrew and John, he you know he he told them like you know f- he told them come and follow me. You know, leave your nets here, come and follow me. And they were fishermen. There wasn't really like anything any like negative connotations associated with their job in that sense. Now now he's calling someone else, but this time it's a tax collector. Now, a tax collector during this time would be someone who, who worked for the Roman government. So, Levi would have been a Jewish man, but he would have worked for Rome. So, like, culturally, he would have kind of been an outcast. Just yeah, because, exactly. Uh-huh. Just, he would have been an outcast just because, you know, he's taking money from he's taking money from Jewish people and giving it to Rome. And basically, his salary comes from overtaxing people. So, any of that extra, he gets to basically keep for himself, right? Yeah, so he was... So, for the Jews, like... Obviously, to us, it just sounds proper to pay your taxes. But for the Jews, remember, they're expecting first a Messiah who would be a political revolutionary. And then, just as important, uh, Rome basically just symbolized Roman power to them. So, yeah. or, Sorry, the taxes did. So somebody collecting taxes to them didn't 
embody someone who just had a job and embodied somebody who was like exerting the Roman power over them. Exactly. So basically for the Jewish people, culturally, someone who's a, who's a tax collector is choosing money and greed over, over like religion kind of right choosing it over the way of the law yeah exactly and so basically a lot of people would would hate tax collectors and especially hate people who were around tax collectors for example their friends and family now jesus makes no distinction when he he tells the other people come and follow me now he's telling this tax collector come and follow me the exact same way and you you know he's giving he's kind of giving up in this case probably way more money than could be made as a fisherman because of you know how, how rich and um you know just how much power people get becoming tax collectors you know they have the backing of the roman government the roman military he's giving that up and he follows jesus and it really just like shows how how jesus is telling these people who are like um quote unquote sinners in the eyes of the pharisees you know he tells them to follow him and he does it whereas the the pharisees and other religious elites you know they're not really getting the point they're, they're kind of like struggling to really uh follow after jesus or, or really understand who he really even is and he spends the time with these people who are tax collectors or people associated as sinners and I just, I just found this to be like super interesting how someone who is like so looked down upon uh, by society, like is still ultimately doing exactly what Jesus wants for him to do. Yeah, exactly. So if, if you're kind of new to just like the New Testament world, and we've been talking a lot about context, some, sometimes it can kind of be uh, hard to understand like who these different religious groups are. So you'll see the scribes mentioned who we've talked about before you'll see the pharisees mentioned so pharisees were typically interpreters of the law uh experts in the law like most pharisees probably would have had like a a a good portion if not all of like the old testament pretty much memorized um they they were elites in terms of following the law but as we know from the new testament they also added to the law which is kind of uh, one of Jesus's big problems with them. And then like in just another group real quick, we're not going to be discussing them in Mark 2 today, but is the Sadducees. So the Sadducees uh, did a lot of work in the temple and uh, were like leaders in the temple. And But one big distinction between the two groups besides just their exact role was that the Pharisees uh, did place a lot of emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the, the role of man in adhering to the Torah. But they believed in like a future resurrection and a resurrection of the body, whereas to the Sadducees, that was unthinkable. So the idea that Jesus was resurrecting or that uh, believers one day would resurrect to the Sadducees, that'd be kind of, that wouldn't fit in with their with their theology. And then just the fact that Jesus is with the tax collector, you know, that's really bad in the eyes of the, of the Pharisees. Um, they basically say, why are you with tax collectors and why are you with sinners? And then Jesus basically, he goes back to them and says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And this was really interesting to me because, you know, obviously uh, we, we see in, in Romans that, you know, our righteousness has everything to do with like Jesus dying for us. So technically like no one is, is really just righteous on their own account. But, you know, righteousness isn't in the Old Testament isn't really like a negative thing. You know, God calls people righteous and, and you know, he, he finds favor in them because of it. For example, Noah, for example, Job um, in Genesis six nine um you know god says that noah was righteous and you know just looking back to that he says um those are the generations of noah noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation noah walked with god so you know noah walked with god because he was righteous so i don't think that you know it would be a negative connotation to be righteous but i think that jesus jesus what he is doing is you know he's calling out the pharisees for saying you know you think you're righteous but really you're not 
I came for those who you actually think are sinners, but those are the people who like are actually have the heart to actually follow after me. Whereas the Pharisees have, you know, hardened hearts, so they can't really understand to follow after Jesus. Yeah, exactly. This reminds me of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, where Jesus introduces the Beatitudes. And we've talked about in the, in the intro episode to Mark, the upside down kingdom ethic, where we just have like, what you expect the kingdom to be is not what the kingdom is like. So Jesus talking about like, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is kind of that idea that, that Jesus didn't come for those who are righteous in spirit, but those who have a poverty of spirit, those who are, who are in need. Yeah, and the, exactly. And this, the sinners here are, are not just, it's not just referring to those who have a poverty of spirit. It's also referring to just more broadly, those who stand outside of Jewish rules and their walk of faith. So anybody outside of that would have been seen as a sinner. But here it's clear, like Andrew is saying, righteous, it, Jesus is associating it with those who have that self-righteousness and who may, may have thought that their righteousness was their own. And uh, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5, our righteousness comes from another. And then we go into the next two sections about uh, fasting and the Sabbath, which are you know two ideas we've talked about a little bit already. And so to get through these, um, about the fasting one, the interesting thing to me was, was you know, how it, it paints this like really cool picture about um, the bridegroom and, and Jesus and the wedding guests and that kind of thing. Do you have anything about that? Yeah, I think this is like my favorite part of the whole chapter almost. So it's interesting because in the Old Testament, the imagery of God being a husband or Jesus being a husband is not that the Messiah is the husband, but that God is. So we see that Jesus is identifying as God, but it's also interesting because, and again, this goes back to the context. To us, it doesn't make much sense about fasting and there being a bridegroom, but in their time, wedding celebrations in Jewish culture lasted several days. And so there was a ton of food and wine and you were expectant and you were expected to to participate in that. Like fasting in that moment is out of the question. You're, you're not fasting at the wedding celebration that's lasting for that amount of time. In the same way Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom, I'm here. Fasting is out of the question. Why would they be fasting when I'm here? But when they leave, uh, they will fast. So what's interesting today is you kind of see fasting falling out of just Western Christianity. But it's interesting because Jesus says, then they will fast in that day when I leave. So Jesus is assuming that once he's gone and the Holy Spirit is here, that we will fast. You know, that's, that's really interesting, especially because, you know, I think the whole idea is, you know, in a wedding, there should be like a lot of joy and, you know, just like not eating in a wedding wouldn't like be properly partaking into like the joy that should be like associated with it. Exactly. In the same way Jesus is saying, you know, he's on a mission right now and like he needs the disciples to like, you know, have joy right now. And this isn't like the time for them to fast, but like later on they will fast. Exactly. So Christ is not on earth now and like we're expected to fast, but Jesus is just saying the bridegroom is here. They're not going to fast, but it's fine. Again, it's not that he has a problem with John's disciples uh, or the Pharisees fasting. He doesn't have a problem with fasting. That's part of the law. That's part of what, what the word of God prescribes. He just has a problem with their question. He's not going to have his disciples fast when he's there. Yeah. And then, and then we, we go on to, I guess we actually, before we move on, at the end of this section about, about fasting, he, he talks about, you know, putting the new wine to old wine, wine skins and that kind of thing. And he's kind of, I think this is kind of, you know, Jesus describing how, you know, he's the new way, the new covenant, and he's not really here to, you know, destroy the law, but he's here to fulfill the law. And, you know, he's, he's really saying that, like, just like putting him in the context of like old cultural, um, 
old Jewish cultural, you know, ideas and um, religious like um, practices. Practices, yeah. You know, that's not really gonna work. He's he's showing the new way. Exactly. So the the cloth in verse twenty one and the the wine in twenty two, they really just go together because new cloth will shrink that that they're putting on that that old garment that's torn. So then it'll be inadequate, and then the new wine will ferment and expand so then it won't fit so you need a new wineskin so jesus isn't going to fit in like andrew was saying to this status quo of judaism and and instead like jesus with the blood of the new covenant it uh there's something new there and and i think you see that too with the upcoming passage about him being lord of the sabbath because never before had spoken had somebody spoken about being lord of the sabbath that that's a that's clearly just being right there with god instituting sabbath rest on the seventh day of creation but I think, I think you just have something new here too. Just th- this is a different idea about the Sabbath. And let's talk about that. Yeah, for sure. So basically, um, you know, the Pharisees are calling him out for, you know, plucking the grain. And then kind of Jesus gives them like, he kind of like alludes back to when, you know, David went and took food from, uh, I'm pretty sure it says when, when he took, he basically took bread from, from the temple, which theoretically should not have been something that he did and then but it ended up being okay because you know you know he needed the the food and so he kind of like brings back that story exactly so that story was in first samuel 21 but the key text here actually for what jesus the the thrust of what he's arguing or saying is actually second samuel 7 when god is talking about the davidic covenant and talking about how the son of david will be on the throne forever because him alluding to david is him painting the picture of he is like you think of uh, Matthew chapter one verse one, the start of the genealogy that I'm sure everybody loves. The the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is appealing to David as him as the as like the eternal son of David. So I think that's like the thrust of what Jesus is saying and talking about David. And you know another interesting thing about the discussion of the Sabbath here is that you know God's purpose for the Sabbath was you know to bring us joy in Him. It wasn't really just to you know. Uh, you know, just all this like focus on uh, all these like rules that the Pharisees are really just pushing here. And as Mike said a, a little bit ago, the Pharisees and a lot of other religious leaders were like adding on uh, like some additional rules or whatever that, you know, shouldn't have been there. And Jesus, I think what he's saying here is, you know, he's kind of making the comparison in the same way how you don't need to add anything on to, you know, the laws, like they're sufficient as they are. And, you know, there's like instances where, you know, our human need is, is more important than religious rituals. In that same way, once Jesus dies on the cross, we don't need to add anything on to our justification in Jesus dying on the cross. You know, that's sufficient. There's nothing needs to be added on top of that. Exactly. That's really good. And I, I think the emphasis that you put there on the, the need of the human is good because that's the, that's the object of verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If man was made for the Sabbath, that means Sabbath is the end goal. The end goal is the man's rest and worship of God. We've talked a lot about Sabbath uh, in Nehemiah, or we did last season. But thinking about how the Sabbath was made for man, that's that the idea of Sabbath rest roots in what it means to be human. And like we've been talking a lot on here about like careers and like different things we'd like to do, Enneagrams, productivity, entrepreneurship, jobs. But what what what's important here is Sabbath being made for man. The idea of God instituting Sabbath rest on the seventh day is them saying, or is him saying that there's something greater than activity and product productivity. Like there's something better than just the idea of accomplishment, and that to live like just in the ideas of days one through six, but not to find 
that rest and worship of God is almost to live in an animalistic way. And that uh, the idea is that Sabbath is for man so that man can find that rest and worship in God. And lastly, Jesus declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath, which Mike and I found to be really interesting and honestly really funny because, you know, just a little bit ago, the Pharisees say, you know, why aren't you doing what's lawful on the Sabbath? Then Jesus gives them like an example of David. Then they basically say, you know, that's not enough. That's not good enough for us. You're still not, you're not following the Sabbath. We're not okay with that. And then Jesus tells them, you know what? You're saying that it's not, we're not following the Sabbath because that's not okay for, for God. But he's basically saying, you know, I'm God and I'm telling you it's okay. And then they're still confused by that. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's key here too is that, like you said, the the sat the Pharisees and the religious elite had added had added laws and had not been using the laws it was properly supposed to be used, and so what Jesus is saying, like in like in Matthew talking about how he's the he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law, what what he's also saying is the 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 proper and righteous purpose of the law can only be found in me. I'm gonna show you what the proper use of the law is, and the law is not the law is not ultimate. The Messiah is God is, and that's found in the person work person and work of jesus christ that's really good dude and you know i don't have anything else for this chapter i don't know if you do but if you don't this is probably a a good good uh time to stop you know yeah it sounds good we'll talk to you next week where we continue our time in mark and we hope you guys just enjoyed our time in mark chapter 2 where we see that jesus reigns as king as lord of the sabbath hope you guys enjoy that discussion and you know see you guys next time